Music from this episode is available on the Twin Peaks Evangelion Spotify playlist. Check the show notes for a link. Down. It's fun. Oh, no. Um, it's, Jesus. It's Craig and Vincent. And what's up, motherfuckers? We're back. Surprise! We're back. It's been 25 years and we're back. Can't believe COVID's over. I can't believe it. It's finally over. I, I know. I know. All it took was um, 53 vaccines and um, a third impact. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. How you been? How you been, Vinny? You good? I've been surviving in the post-apocalypse. How have you been? Good, sir. Yeah, it's the middle of summer here. Um, it's hot as shit. Yeah, global warming, spoiler alert, is real. But yeah, I'm, I'm stuck in this dark little room with the curtains drawn, ready to, as, you know, as a good pasty white guy, I'm here to talk about some films. Yeah, we thought we'd do something a little bit different. Uh, we're not going to be talking about Twin Peaks or Evangelion today, you know, contrary to what the uh, the podcast is called. So, um, Vinny, what, uh, what, what are we here to talk about today? Well, for myself, I have watched for the first time and trying to review and recap in such a way the masterpiece that is known as Mulholland Drive from 2001. And I will be... I have watched and will be recapping uh, the 2016 film, live action film, um, Shin Godzilla. So, Vinny, you hadn't seen Mulholland Drive before. I haven't seen any David Lynch films at all, so yeah, I haven't seen Mulholland Drive. Okay. Did you know anything about this film going into it? I knew one thing, and that there was a jump scare, but it still got me. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, that... Um... That one gets everyone. It's a doozy. (laughs) It's one of those where you see it coming, but then it still happens like, God dang it. And I knew this. It's the only thing I knew about the film and still got me. So the rest was still a surprise. But honestly, Craig, let me be real with you. I was worried that I wasn't going to like this because I'm like, what if it turns out I only like Twin Peaks and then the rest of David Lynch is like too bad for me or too out there for me. But no, I had a great time with this. So I'm glad I'm actually going to enjoy this. Nice. And um, just just for those playing along at home, uh, you you purchased and watched the um, the beautiful Criterion Collection edition yes. of this. Is that right? Yes, I watched it in beautiful 4K, playing off my PS5 with headphones in, so that didn't help the jump scare either. Nice. Let me let me just wave it around for you. I know everyone else can't see it, but I'm just gonna do it for my buddy Craig. Just beautiful Criterion slipcover. Oh. Man, man, I have I have such an erection right now. God, I can see it. Oh my god, it's a thing of beauty. The 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 uh, the disc that is. (laughs) Anyway, enough of that. So, as as hard of a task as this is, Vinny, um, I'm going to ask you: Can you please recap (laughs) Mulholland Drive for us? (laughs) All right, so let me set the mood. I, I, I put the disc in my PS5, I hit play, I put the headphones in, then immediately swing music <laughs> and people dancing in a purple room. Like, well, already the first second I am confused, but I was like, yeah, this this feels right. 
why would I expect this to be like a panning shot of LA down into the mm-hmm. story? Like, no, it's just loud swing music, people dancing in a purple room, and you see Naomi Watts in overexposed light, then zoom in on an empty bed, and then that's when you get the opening credits of the close-up of the Mulholland Drive sign, and then opening credits of everyone starring in, and then get introduced to a limo driving around in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. You see that the limo is driving in somewhere in the Hollywood Hills and how it abruptly stops. There's a concerned woman in the back saying, hey, we're not supposed to stop here. M- driver pulls out a gun, says, get out. But before anything happens, we cut to two speeding cars with laughing teenagers just having kicks and they crash into the limo. I was like, well, <laughs> we really just start go just run straight toward the plot like geez like but also like i saw all these teenagers like driving around and like god this is beyond reckless you idiots <laughs> yeah so the woman is the only one to survive the crash there's visual head trauma to her and she looks off into the city of angels and just walks towards the light cut to the car crash is found by sheriff truman and policeman from twin peaks the return yes i yes. was so happy to see them both yeah, I was wondering if you'd um, if you'd recognize them. No, that was cool. Oh, the only scene that they're in. <laughs> right. I was so because I, w- I was looking forward to <gasps> maybe it's gonna be a cat and mouse thing with Robert Forrester and the other guy looking for her. No, it's just them being like it's pretty bad, but there's evidence that someone left the wreckage. Hmm. But then doesn't go anywhere with that. <laughs> yep. Damn, but I'm like, oh, so David Lynch is just like all, all the other like high crit- critically acclaimed directors where they have their batch of actors and just call them back up for other stuff, right? Because was Twin Peaks Evangelion basically the culmination of all his actors coming in? I mean, Twin Peaks The Return, not Twin Peaks Evangelion. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't quite know where you were going with that, but yeah. No, um, th- th- there is kind of a reason why those scenes are so brief and i'll I'll, we'll get to it after all right so we cut back to the woman walking around the dead of night in los angeles she starts hiding in the shadows whenever someone gets near then she passes out on the lawn of a building then cut to the next morning where a woman a red-haired woman is packing up things into a taxi cab as she leaves her apartment this unknown woman goes into the apartment and just takes refuge in there Cut to, not Denny's, but Winkies, where Duncan from Twin Peaks The Return is eating breakfast with a friend. Mm-hmm. It just keeps happening. I'm like, there it is, the Leo meme. Oh, there he is. There he is. Yep. So it's him sitting down breakfast with an un- unnamed friend where they're just kind of smiling. And he's like, you want to know why I chose this place to eat? He's like, and his friend's like, yeah, sure. Okay, so I've dreamt about this place twice. And with the last dream that just happened, it was us eating here. You're at the bar. I was sitting here and we were both scared. Just we looked at each other and we're scared. And we felt this evil presence of a man looking at us from beyond the wall. So then his friend's like, okay, weirdo, I'm gonna go pay, pay the bill. And then it's, it's him at the bar, exactly like the guy described. He's like, ugh. Mm. And then my least favorite thing about this, he leaves and you zoom in on the plate. He didn't touch a single thing of his food. Hash browns, mm. two eggs, and bacon. It looks so good. Yeah, it was a good breakfast. Very good. So then they walk outside around the building to look for this evil presence because the guy makes it very clear, I never want to see that outside of my dream ever. Yet they go and investigate the, the spot that where this <laughs> evil presence is. Yep. Idiots. <laughs> yeah, logical thing to do. That's cool. 
So they walk past the dumpster in the back that is filled with graffiti, turn the the camera slowly turns to a POV, and as they turn the corner, a homeless man covered in black tar is the jump scare and scares this man to the ground, and he's like pasty white from the experience. Yeah. Ah, oh, um, so scary. Yeah, that was horrifying. I saw this in a cinema a couple of years ago. Um, and I'd, I mean, I'd seen the film a few times, mm-hmm. but seeing that on the big screen with a huge sound, it was just like, even though I knew it was coming, mm-hmm. I was like, get over it. And yeah, it still got me. <laughs> so, so creepy. So then we just zoom in on him, like freaking out on the ground. Then it cuts to a man in an office with a speaker. He is talking on the phone and goes, the girl is still missing. Then whoever he calls, calls another man with a phone attached to a light. And here's, it's the same. Hang up. Then that guy with the light phone calls a different phone that is on a nightstand. A black phone with a lamp. But that phone does not get answered. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Cut yeah, to. Mysteries upon mysteries. It's, I'm like, yeah, exactly. Ten levels of mysteries. I'm like, I should have known. I should have known. <laughs> Let's just keep going. So cut to LAX airport where Naomi Watts is leaving the gate after arriving in Los Angeles. We get that her name is Betty, and she has been chit-chatting with this woman, Irene, on the flight to Los Angeles, and how she has shared that she's going to be an actress, and how Irene and her husband are saying, well, good luck to you, and we'll be looking for you on the big screen. Then Betty notices her luggage is gone, and that how a taxi guy just already filled up the trunk with her stuff. Like, wait, what? Let me ask you, Vinny. Um, what did you think of Naomi Watts' acting in this moment? You know, this, this is the first time she's appearing in the film. What did you think of her performance in that initial scene? She is so giddy in it. Just all smiles, just like this positive energy. And then I'm just sitting there like, Janie E was nothing like this. <laughs> <laughs> Back in 2001, when this film came out, um, Naomi Watts was not sort of as established as an actress. Um, you know, this was probably her breakout role. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking for, for an audience that wasn't familiar with her, if this was the introduction to her, it's so ham-fisted yeah. and over the top. You know, you would have questioned, why the hell did they hire this, <laughs> this dame for this role? Like, it's so, it's so overblown. I mean, that's Which how is, good she is. It's really funny. Yeah. And then, you know, obviously, as the, as the film progresses, you sort of see the range of her performance which is us which is phenomenal but in that initial scene just like what is this (laughs) like the older people acting better than her yeah exactly so then we follow that cab to drive off but then we cut back to irene and her husband creepily smiling as they're driven away from lax oh that was creepy yeah it was so disturbing just like you could see like the tension in their face because they're really going for the big wide smile with you can see every teeth in their mouth and just then cut to just b-roll of the hollywood sign like oh yeah instead of something horrific here's one of the most like recognizable monuments in, in southern california then we get to the the place where Betty called for 1612 Havenhurst. It's an apartment building where she's greeted by the manager who's known by Coco and goes, Ah, you must be Ruth's niece. Like, yes, yeah, so we establish that she's spending the spending her time here in her 
aunt's apartment but then as we go into the apartment we see that there's traces of the unknown woman when she sneaked in like oh mm. so this is how it's gonna pertain to the film which it's funny because she sees clothes and and a purse on the ground she just thinks nothing of it yeah <laughs> and then yeah, it gets very naive th- then more then she finds this unknown woman showering in the bathroom and instead of freaking out she goes oh i'm so sorry what <laughs> This an unknown person in this place where you're supposed to be alone in. You're like, oh, I'm so sorry. Get dressed. You can really tell that she sort of come from a small town or... Oh, absolutely. I, I would just say, get the fuck out of here. Why are you here? Get out. So then the two start talking after she's dressed. And then for some reason, Betty's like, oh, you must be a friend of my aunt's. You must be, be allowed to be here. So I'm sorry about the misunderstanding. What? <laughs> <laughs> yep. The woman... Is just saying how she can't really remember anything that happened to her and how she she doesn't know her name. So she makes up a name because the aunt had a Rita Hayworth movie poster for the movie Gilda. So she just took the name Rita and said, but I'm Rita. Yep. Then that's when we hear Betty's from a small town in Canada. Like, oh, so like the stereotype of Canadian just being way too helpful is true, I guess. (laughs) Yep. Shout out to all our Canadian listeners. Shout out, homies. You can tell us what what that's all about. Hey. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) So then we cut to this Ryan Entertainment building where two men in suits approach and enter a boardroom. We see Justin Thoreau, who is known as Adam, the director and his manager, sitting down with these Castiglione brothers, where the Mm -hmm. topic is that Adam is recasting his lead actress and that these Castiglione brothers have the person that they need. So in, right as they're getting their stuff out, they get offered an espresso. And then a, a man is making their espresso while they give out a headshot and they, with this Camilla Rhodes and says, this is the girl. Mm. The man in the, in the office who made a call earlier with a speaker is, is cut to and he's clearly listening in on this entire thing cut back to adam being confused like what do you mean this is my film you can't just tell me to make this the new lead actress then one Mm -hmm. of the brothers gets his espresso takes a sip and just spits it all out because he's disgusted (laughs) yeah i love that scene it's such a um yeah such a a a dick swinging move (laughs) you know um interesting interesting little tidbit the man you know the I guess the mobster that is spitting out the espresso is um, is Angelo Badalamenti, whose name you might recognize. He's the guy that did all the music for most of Lynch's films, including Twin Peaks. Oh. So he's the guy that that made the famous Twin Peaks score, like the, the theme song, did the score for Mulholland Drive. And um, yeah, he's worked with Lynch for years and years. Nice. Good man. Well, he's a great actor in just this one little scene. My God. Yeah. So then that one brother spinning out his, his special, then the other brother loudly blows his nose and just screams, ah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then they leave out angrily and they just reaffirm, this is the girl, this is no longer your film. Adam doesn't really take that kindly. He walks out angrily and as he leaves for his car, he sees a nice car in the parking lot and assumes it's the Castellones brother's car and just bashes in the windshields and drives off. Total with a golf club, total uh, 
Jack Nicholson move there. Yeah, I was confused because I thought it was a cane because he was like limping on it, but then it, it's revealed to be a golf club. Like, does he just use it as a cane? Like, what? Well, because I, he was I, leaving I the building with it. But he um, he has that golf club with him at the table, which was weird. I mean, I, I sort of I sort of knew what was going to happen. Having right. seen the movie a few times, but I thought it was a strange choice to have that prop. <laughs> you mentioned the the man in the sort of isolated in the room that was kind of listening in mm-hmm. this is an actor who was in the original twin peaks mm-hmm. um he's okay. actually a he's actually a little person mm-hmm. for this for this role in mulholland drive they had him they basically built him into this like bodysuit where he was like standing i guess on this chair thing with his head poking out and like with prosthetic limbs so to give the effect that it was a normal sized person with like just an abnormally small head. Yeah, because yeah, they do have that one shot of just him, and you can see like both his feet are on the floor, and he's just like wide, just sitting wide in the chair. Yeah, so. and he's just Dang. got this tiny little head. But yeah, just that was really kind of interesting. So then that man is then spoken to by one of the board members, who is brief. He's known as Mister Rogue. And he's brief on the situation, how, like, Adam doesn't like this. And Mr. Rogue reaffirms, Camilla Rhodes is the girl. Just shut everything down. Mm. So obviously he's got a lot of power in this whole in this whole situation. I know Adam thinks he's calling the shots, yet there's three layers of other guys who are actually calling the shots. Right, what happens next? We cut to two men in an office building laughing as they talk about an accident. One with long hair, one with short hair, and hetero- heterochromia, where the two different colors for your eyes. So then they're laughing about this oh, accident, and then the short-haired man asks the long-haired man, Hey, is that Ed's black book? He's like, Yeah, it is. The history of the world in numbers. Then just immediately the short-haired man just shoots the long-haired man dead and then tries to make it look like a suicide. But as he's wiping off his prints and putting the gun in the dead man's hand, the the gun goes off. You see the bullet goes through the, the wall and it hits some woman on the other <laughs> side. And the screaming she does is hilarious. Something bit me bad! Bit me bad! It almost sounded like Jennifer Coolidge in that moment. Bit me bad! <laughs> <laughs> but, like, the screaming of her reminded me of that one Karen from Twin Peaks The Return who's like, We oh, gotta God, go! You... She's sick! And it's with oh, the zombie girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, Do you recognize the shooter at all? He was he was in Twin Peaks, briefly. Oh, shit, he was? Uh, I didn't uh, recognize very him. Very briefly. He was, he was in one of the Roadhouse scenes. He was the guy who came bowling in and talked about some arse eater that cut him off <laughs> dang it guy. i should have recognized this man dang it that's my one j- ah i'm so mad so one job is to recognize the analingus um references vinny <laughs> screwed up it was a mistake coming back it was a mistake you're fired um <laughs> So, this man runs off to see this woman. She's like, yeah, I saw they bit me real bad. Then he's like, oh, let me help you. Then starts strangling her to the ground, trying to drag her back to the main office. But as they're in the hallway, a custodian who is vacuuming the hallway sees the entire thing. And the guy tries to cover it up. Man, she's hurt real bad. You gotta help me, man. I gotta get her under control. And the guy just stand there, just like, no expression, just looking at this struggle. So then he's able to drag this woman inside the office and then lets her go, grabs the gun again, and shoots her dead. Then the poor custodian comes in with the vacuum 
and then is just shot dead as the vacuum is still going on. So the man is trying to assemble all these bodies together, trying to make it look like a murder-suicide at this point. But the vacuum is still going. And instead of, you know, as any human should, just go up to it and turn it off, he decides, I'm just going to shoot it. So he just <laughs> shoots it, the vacuum, it explodes, causing the fire alarm to go off. And he's like, ah, oh, fuck it, just leaves the gun, takes the book, and goes down the fire escape. You idiot. Yeah, didn't go as smoothly as he, uh, as he would have hoped. Like, why? Like, why shoot it? Just, do you think you're that badass? Like, oh, you're by yourself, no, you have think, no one to prove. I, th- I think what he was doing, and... I don't know if this is just like a, a TV and film thing or if it's like a, a real thing, but um, I think it's something to do with like the, if you shoot somebody with a gun, it kind of like, it leaves a residue or something like that, um, which can be traced back to you. So they, so often if you, if someone gets shot, they, they'll try and they'll like wipe their prints off the gun and then shoot the gun again to sort of like clear all the evidence, mm-hmm. like the fibers or whatever whatever residue or something something along those lines so i think he was just trying to like clear the chamber so he didn't leave any trace mm. i think that's what was, was happening but he's just fucked it up twice seriously <laughs> just the worst hitman imaginable like mm. at least Chantel and hug and hut what was the other guy tim ross name hutch, um, hutch yeah it's Chantel and hutch but they were they were incompetent but they still got the job done yeah hell yeah all while eating wendy's anyways we get Back to the story where um, Betty is talking with her Aunt Ruth on the phone, being like, oh yeah, I also met your friend Rita. And then that's when she's informed, wait, this isn't your friend? But but she was in here. And then her Aunt Ruth is threatening to call the police. And then Betty's like, oh no, no, I'm sure everything's fine. Just this pure soul of Betty just being like, oh, I could yeah. help her. So then that's when it's all out in the open and they open the purse that Rita had, it's full of money and a weird blue key. But also, with how small that purse was, I was convinced this was something out of Harry Potter. They just kept taking money <laughs> out of that thing. Oh, it's like a clown car. It's insane. Like, they had, like, a briefcase amount of money inside this small little hand purse. Like, jeez. <laughs> and then they see this weird blue key and they're like, oh, I don't know. Then cut to the hitman we just saw. He stops at Pink's Hot Dog and starts interrogating this woman to see if a brunette has turned up on the streets. But <laughs> I just like, like, Pink's Hot Dog is like known as like, the, you know, the best hot dogs in LA. And it's like, just David Lynch right. being like, what's a good place for a hitman to go after he killed someone? Oh, Pink's Hot Dog. <laughs> okay. Nice. It's good, uh, good insider knowledge there. I've only been to LA once or twice and, um, yeah, don't know much about it, to be honest. I only know... The first time I ever heard about Pink's Hot Dog, they opened one at um, Universal City Walk, and the person who who cut the ribbon at the grand opening was Betty White. Oh, cool. Rest in peace. Rest in peace, Betty White. This one's for you. We came back for you. Yeah, we, d- we didn't know that until just now, but that's that's what we did. That's what we do. Golden Girls of Evangelion. No. <laughs> <laughs> Craig, do not give me ideas. Do no, God, no, it's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep going. What, what happens next? Cut back to Adam driving. His his assistant calls him, lets him know that the set is closed and that he should get over here and take control of the situation. He instead goes, nah, I'm just going to go home. 
So he's basically like completely Mr. Fuck it, like whatever, my job, whatever, I just want to get home. But when he goes home, he sees this Glenn cleaning truck is in the driveway. He's like, huh, weird. Walks in, calls out for his wife Lorraine, no answer. He then makes it to the bedroom where he hears uh, some tussling going around. He goes in and sees said wife Lorraine in the same bed as Billy Ray Cyrus. Yes. <laughs> Such a, a weird... Every, anyone that you could have as a cameo in your film. Billy Ray Cyrus is nowhere near the top of anyone's list. <laughs> I don't know. Nowhere near. Because in 2001, yeah, this is before like Hannah Montana and he had a resurgence just being like Miley Cyrus' dad. Like, no, he's yeah. still the achy, breaky heart man at this point. <laughs> yeah, like 10, 12 years after achy, breaky heart was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> but in that moment when I saw him, like... I think J. David Lynch is a genius because he's able to sneak in David Bowie and Billy Ray Cyrus in his work, and I have no idea either of them are going to show up. <laughs> yeah. Did you recognize him when when he was on screen? The second I saw him, I'm like, holy shit, that's Billy Ray Cyrus! Really? Oh, wow. Okay. Well, you're, you're a big country fan, though, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> so what everyone says about you, you're a huge... You, uh, what I've heard about you is that you like both types of music. You like country and western. <laughs> You're right. I'm, I'm sorry, everyone. I lied. He knows the real me. So it's so funny because it's then the thing where they're yelling at him, "Get out!" And it's like you want him to leave this man who just caught you cheating in his yeah. very expensive home. You're like, "Get out!" This man is allowed to be angry. Yeah. But he's not, though. He's just so calm. He's just like, He huh. is so calm. He calmly walks to the dresser, takes a jewelry box, heads to the garage, and just fills it with paint because he knows that Lorraine loves that jewelry and he's just going to ruin her in some way in that moment. So then Lorraine attacks him. He starts defending himself. Then Billy Ray is like, that's not a way to treat a woman. Just knocks him on his ass and kicks him out. So then I just feel bad for Adam. He just gets in his car covered in paint and just drives away. Cut back to Rita and Beth trying to make sense of everything, and then Rita remembers Mulholland Drive and an accident. So then Beth comes out with a smart idea to call the police from a payphone and try and get information. And then this is when the movie becomes like, man, Zoomers will not understand, because not only do they use a payphone to call the police department anonymously, they also buy a newspaper to get more information. <laughs> Zoomers are not going to know what these people are doing. To get information. So why do they have that big piece of paper? <laughs> why are they? Why do they have to go somewhere to make a call? They get confirmation that it was an accident, but then the police are like, "We can't give you any more information until you give us your name." So hangs up, looks at the newspaper while they're eating at Winkies, and they're like, "Huh, nothing in the newspaper. I guess it's too new." So then the server comes in to refill their coffee. The server's name is Diane. And Rita is triggered by this. But then also at this point, I'm like, this is the closest I'll ever get to Janie E sharing a scene with Diane. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Like, damn, I'm still honestly, Matt, I'm still mad about this. I never got a scene with Diane and Janie E just yelling at each other. That would have been amazing. Fuck you, Janie. Fuck you, Diane. Then someone's like, can you settle down? They both go, fuck you. Don't talk to her like that. Yeah, don't talk to her like that. (laughs) (laughs) Rita's like... I remember a name, Diane Selwyn. They look at the phone book, another thing Zoomers won't understand, <laughs> and that's how they get this woman's address. <laughs> Zoomers like, wait, you have to look in a book to get someone's address? 
I forgot how big phone books were. Like, that thing was massive. I'm like, holy shit, it was that big. An encyclopedia. Especially in in LA as well. Like, there's so many people. Dude, um, they're so big. I remember when I was a kid, like, they they kind of split it into two volumes. Like, one was, like, A to L and one was, like, M to Z or something like that. Did they do that? No, it was just one big one for us. It was just one big one. Wow. I remember I was a kid and I liked looking at it because there was, like, different, like, color uh, pages for everything like oh here's the business one here's the restaurant one here's like the leisurely one it was like red blue green it was so vibrantly colored for me as a young child oh, really? just to be looking through it <laughs> wow and uh, i suppose you probably had to take them to school to sit on so you could reach the desk right. <laughs> <laughs> fuck you it's <laughs> the five for five over here <laughs> i hate you I hate you. <laughs> this was all a ploy just to get back at me. I respect what, it. Though? What though? What did you do? Nothing. I made you watch anime. You. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. You, you, you bastard. <laughs> so they they call the the number that's on there for the Diane Selwyn. They get the answering machine. They hear a voice, but it's clearly not Rita's. And they're like, "Well, let's just head there later." It's like, it's still smart move. Like, it's smart move, but also like, yeah, everyone's address was in that phone book. You could legit just look up someone and then find their address. Like, sure, you can do that with the internet now, but there's still like some, like something stopping you between searching. Like, okay, is it on Facebook? Is it on Instagram? Is it something where this is just book of everyone's address. Yeah. So <laughs> then cut back to Adam's house where a mobster is going in there trying to look for Adam. Lorraine and Billy Ray immediately attack the man and then he just lays them out. <laughs> yeah. I, I strongly detest violence against women. That, that shot where it's kind of like a close up of his of his fist kind of cracking, and then it just kind of it connects off screen. You see it like this crack. She's on his back. It's so funny because it doesn't look. It just tired. like just standing there. Boom. Yeah, it's like he's complete, and then he just goes completely unfazed by it. He just keeps calling out for Adam. So then cut to a dingy hotel in the middle of Los Angeles where Adam is in, and he's informed by the man in, the man in charge, Cookie, that his credit cards are, de- are being declined and that men are looking for him. So then Adam goes into the room, calls his assistant, and hears more about, hey, they were looking for you here too. Also, I did double check, and yeah, all your stuff is declined. You're out of money. But also there's this cowboy man who wants to meet you. He's like, oh, do I need a 10-gallon hat? He's like, well, this guy's clearly after you, so take this seriously. Yeah. So he's like, fine, I'll meet him, call him, and then we'll we'll arrange a meeting. Go back to Rita and Beth are in their apartment, and an old woman bangs on the door, warning that they are in danger. And Coco intervenes and says, oh, don't worry, this Louise Bonner. And then I'm in that moment, like, did... Is that like a boner joke? Like, because they just did that in the MCU with Ralph Bonner, but everyone was like, it's boner? No, it's Bonner. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm just trying to think of these examples from Lynch's previous films where he's made dick jokes. I know he sort of, in The Return, he had that whole exchange about, you know, you've gone soft and not where it counts, counts, buddy. (laughs) But, you know, that was a few years later. I'm wondering if there's been any precedent for that in the earlier in his career. I'm not, I'm not sure. Which is weird, because I usually have an encyclopedic knowledge of um, of dick jokes. But no, can't, can't think of anything. 
there's a line in um, Lost Highway that I really like where, um, you know, one of the characters is um, successful with the ladies and um, someone mentions that he, he gets more pussy than a toilet seat, which is, <laughs> <laughs> which is very crude. That's good. That's good. <laughs> That's really good. Oh, shit, I'm dying. Oh. Okay, so Coco intervenes and says, oh, don't worry about this lady. And then does something else Zoomers don't understand. Oh, here's your facts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just here's your facts for the audition tomorrow. And I'm like, I'm trying to think, when was the last time I heard the word facts? Probably yeah. 10 years ago. <laughs> Any, anyone listening to this under the age of like 23, consult your local museum for... <laughs> For the answers to all your questions. So then, cut back to Adam is driving at night because his instructions were go to the top of basically like the Hollywood Hills and go to this old corral. So then he goes to this corral at the gates of it, and there's this loud buzzing of a of a of a light bulb. I'm like, huh, that feels very Twin Peaks for Return. The just the loud electrifying buzzing sound over this man as he goes into a dark place. So then he just walks further into the corral. The cowboy arrives, makes a nice little small talk with him. And then Adam's just trying to get to the point. He's like, whoa, relax. I'm driving this buggy, all right? So let's. I'm going to take this where we need to take this. Then he asks him mm-hmm. about this philosophical question. Do you believe that a man's attitude in, uh, dictates how his life will turn out? And I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. Like, no, I want you to think about it. Will you listen to me or are you just waiting for me to stop talking before you answer? And he's like... I'm thinking about it, and yes, I agree. He's like, all right, well, you need to start playing ball with how he casts his lead actresses. So then he he reestablishes that, look, this girl, she is the girl. You need to stop being a smartass because either two things will happen. You'll see me again one more time, and that means you did a good job. you see me again two more times, and that means you did a very bad job. Yeah, this is a really interesting scene. I just think that the power that this ostensibly ridiculous character has i mean he's wearing ridiculous clothes i don't know if you noticed but he, he doesn't have any eyebrows he, yeah i did notice that like halfway through i'm like why is it so intense oh because he just like big old eyes and no eyebrows he's got this kind of goofy accent um he doesn't he doesn't strike me as like a um like an actual cowboy type no he's, he's more like a, he's, he's a movie star cowboy you know, right. like a 1950s movie right. cowboy. He looks like how Marty looked like in Back to the Future 3 before he left yeah. for the westerns, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Our second um, Back to the Future 3 reference that we've made on this podcast. Yeah, see? <laughs> Callbacks. We're professionals, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, so what, what happens after the cowboy? After the cowboy, we see Beth head to her audition at a studio as she promises that she'll come back to read and then they'll investigate the apartment address. So then we see her go to the studio, which I recognize as Paramount Studio. They, it's funny because David Lynch slightly lowered the angle that way. It's right <laughs> under the letters of Paramount Studios. <laughs> yeah, couldn't quite get the rights to, to that. But. It was so funny. So we see her again to the studio. She does this audition with a room full of people. I'm like, that's right. This shit does happen in front of a bunch, a whole bunch of people. Like, okay, just show us how good you are while you're being judged by every single angle. So she does the scene. She, I think she's doing very well. It's a very, very emotional scene about revenge and love and lust and blah, blah, blah. And I thought she killed it. She's actually crying in the middle of it. Like, my God. Naomi Watts showed up and be like, look, I, she, she, she was very good at showing that 
the vulnerability, vulnerability, but also her strive to be good in that audition. Like, my goodness. This is one of those scenes that film scholars and, and people that, you know, analyze film um, often point to. This is, I think, the moment in the film where David Lynch does something really clever here. Because earlier in the, um, you know, in the scene before this, she's rehearsing these lines with Rita. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's it's real. I mean, the dialogue is, is fucking days of our lives. Yeah. bullshit. I mean, it's it's garbage, you know, writing. And, you know, she sort of delivers it in, in an okay kind of way. Like, yeah. you know, really kind of soap opera kind of thing. It sort of sets up the, this expectation that this is what the audition's going to be like. Yeah. And when she gets into that audition and there's this, you know, there's that sort of skeevy over the hill actor who's like you know basically you know seems to be you know using this as an opportunity to you know cop a feel yeah basically and he's like yeah i'm gonna play this one real close like i did with that other girl and you know all this yeah real real skeezy stuff um but then she just but the way the way she sort of runs the scene and the performance that she gives floors absolutely everybody everybody in that room and everybody watching the film Mulholland Drive is just like wow and then I mean the and then she just kind of completely steps out of it like when the scene's finished she just kind of goes back to oh oh, hey was that how was that kind of thing like you know she's just such a pro and you know we're kind of led to believe that her acting is okay but Mm -hmm. like but you know she's a naive wide-eyed person from canada at this point but then she delivers that performance you're just like wow okay she's got some chops and you know the people in the room are still reeling after her performance and she's just like you know completely divorced from it at that point it's yeah yeah just yeah wild sort of setting up and you know an expectation then completely undermining it it's one of those things stuff where I think of method acting, I'm like, yeah, oh, this person was in character like for a week. And I'm like, I mean, sure, you, you, that's cool, that's dedication. But like an actor who can just boom, they're instantly in it, and boom, the second hit cut, then they're back to themselves. Like, I like that more. Yeah. I think that's more commendable than oh, there's um, Daniel Day Lewis. He was Lincoln on set. People would talk to him as if he was Lincoln. Like, I mean, sure, I mean, he did his research. But if you can just instantly like be having a chit chat, blah blah blah, action, blah, 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 and then act your ass off, and then come back from it then that's better yeah yeah that's yeah it's almost more impressive in a way so yeah it's, it is funny because they all do that small talk oh we'll call you blah 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 then the second the door closes wow yeah yeah everyone's just stunned <laughs> and then her poor like manager woman is like "Ugh, that was so bad oh no you were great but them just small talking to you about it was bad like oh yeah I think that's an interesting comment on, um, you know, just, I guess, the, the two-facedness of, of Hollywood. You know, everyone yeah. sort of, like, you know, blow smoke up each other's ass and then talk shit about them behind their back. <laughs> you know, yeah, don't blow smoke up the ass. Board. Don't blow smoke up the ass. Come on. Gotta eat out of that thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, then, so then they're leaving like, oh, that was so bad. But we have something else for you. Mm. So then they walk over to a soundstage in the studio. We see Adam auditioning people for the lead actress role. You see him ending when he's like, oh, you're so good. Trust me, you're the one I want, but they won't let me stop until I listen to everybody. I'll call you, and then we'll get this all done. So then the next person is like, oh, Camilla Rhodes auditioning. And you see Adam just sit up in his seat like, all right, this is the moment. 
So as they're prepping up for Camilla, um, Betty and her and her people just walk in, and then she's like awestruck, like she's finally on a set. She finally is in the place she wants to be, just not in the capacity she wants to be. Then her and Adam lock eyes, and it's this very like obviously like they're staring into each other's soul in the moment they lock eyes. Like there's some connection there. And then he's mm-hmm. then he has to like trying to adjust himself, trying to get back into work mode, because not only is your life depending on this, but you see this woman that you just can't take your eyes off of. Like, nope, can't I? <laughs> need i need to do my job or else the cowboy man will probably kill me Mm. so then yeah we see the camilla woman just do a singing because it it, apparently this is a musical adam is making or something like that because it's very hairspray because it's just the big hair the pearls the dresses just singing i'm like is he just making hairspray So he he's listening to the audition. Then the two men, the two like guys in charge, are, are like, "Well, what do you think?" He's and he yeah, just looks them. You want to tell us, Adam? Yeah. Then he just says it. This is the girl. <laughs> just making it very clear. Like I will say what you need to say, but I am no way act- acting like this is what I want to say. So then after that is done, then we see uh, Betty is all flushed, like, wait, I got to get back home. I'm sorry, but I can't do this right now. I got to go and see my friend. So then we cut back to uh, Betty going back with Rita to the apartment address for this Diane Selwyn, where they're sneaking around the complex and they see all these men in, like, a business attire and suitcases. Like, basically, they find the Secret Service in this place scoping around. Mm-hmm. There's two guys in a car just sitting out back. They're like, okay, taxi driver, leave us out back and we'll sneak in. So then they head into the apartment. They see the mm-hmm. directory and see that this Diane is in apartment unit 12. They go there and knock on the door. At first, no one answers. Then this one woman answers and goes, can I help you? They're like, we're looking for uh, Diane. She's like, oh, she's actually in apartment 17. We had to switch um, units. So then they're like, she's like, it's down the hall to the right. And then she goes, actually, I'll go with you. She has some stuff of mine. And then you see Rita and Betty like, oh, no, oh, no. But luckily, a phone goes off in that woman's apartment. She goes, go ahead. I got to go take that. We then slowly creep onto the apartment. And then there's no way in. There's no answer from the door. So then Betty just breaks in. And then Rita's like, we can't do that. Betty's like, come on, why not? She chops into the window and says, I'll get the front door for you. Then when she opens the front door, we see her covering her nose because obviously there's a bad smell indicating the place. They slowly walk in into the, the bedroom of the place and they see a deceasing uh, or a deceased woman who's just been decaying in the bed like it. Like and then Rita is like trying to scream, but then Betty has to cover her mouth because the other lady's gonna come any second. So it's just this very good, like just good muffled scream of just horror as she's trying to contain her. Yeah. Then Rita just freaks outside, and we get like this overexposed shot of like both of them, like two different takes, like superimposed on top of each other, just freaking out. Which I'm like, ooh, that's yeah. a weird, that's a cool way to show like anxiety. Like you don't know what's going on. You just feel like this out of body experience of just. Finding a dead body in this woman's place. They head back to Betty's apartment where uh, Rita is quickly trying to just cut off all her hair and try to change her appearance. And then Betty's like, calm down, calm down, let me help you. Because I know what you're trying to do and you can't do it like this. So she just fixed her up with a blonde wig and and says, well, this is how you're going to be from now on. They get ready for bed where Rita's going to sleep on the couch again and Betty's in her bed. And then she's like, come on, come come to bed with me. You shouldn't be on the sofa. 
Rita's like, okay, let me just take off this wig. And then she's naked going into the bed. And then they start kissing. And then they have sex. In that moment, I'm like, I guess they have a connection. Like, I... I I wasn't like this. wasn't like oh, this is forced like a love interest. Um, I th- I thought in that moment like I think I because for Rita like this is the only woman she's ever known, and for Betty like this is like the closest person she has in L.A. Like this is a new place for mm. you, new town. You don't know anyone, and here's this woman that you should have kicked out the second you saw, but you yeah. have this connection with her. You feel for her. She wants to know who she is. There's clearly people after her, so let me help each other. So in this moment, like. All right, this is getting interesting. I guess they're kind of invested in each other's, well, Betty at least is invested in her story at this point. You know, they've sort of been through, she's got this mystery that, you know, she is trying to uncover about, you know, who she is and what, you know, what's going on and what's happening with the money and the blue key. You know, they've just they've just seen a dead body together. <laughs> they both snuck into this apartment. So they're kind of, they're kind of in each other's worlds now. You know, it's a very film noir-esque the, the, the protagonist falls for the the femme fatale even though in this instance the femme fatale isn't necessarily actively manipulating anybody as they okay. do and um, <laughs> guess what my university major was <laughs> you know did a, did a, it is an interesting scene and um yeah fucking hot <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I'm Real so hot. glad like 15 me didn't watch this because he wouldn't appreciate it like as art he would be like this is fucking awesome <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah no it's it's yeah very erotic scene yeah also like just like the the sensualness of like have you ever done this before no but I want to do it with you and Rita's just like I, I don't know <laughs> I don't know <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah but again that kind of feels I guess it kind of feels natural I guess for them in that, in that moment yeah, two straight guys discussing this scene. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Noted scholars on um, LGBT representation in, in uh, early 21st century cinema. <laughs> so then we cut to them holding hands in the sleep, and then Rita is speaking her, in, her, in her sleep, Silencio. No hay banda, no hay orquestria. And she just keeps saying this over and over again until Betty is awoken and goes, what, what, what's wrong? And then Rita's like, go with me somewhere. It's 2 a.m. What do you mean? Go with me somewhere. So we cut to them taking a, a taxi into this dark, like right off the alleyway theater called Silencio, where there's a few people in this scattered theater. And this man comes up the showman goes no i banda but there is a band but there is music there is no band but there is music this is all a tape recording and he starts doing this hand gestures and talking about an instrument like here's a trumpet then it starts playing and here's a silent trumpet and then that starts playing then a man miming playing an instrument comes out and then he stops playing he's like see all a tape recording i'm like mm. what kind of show is this <laughs> <laughs> so then we see that there's a woman with blue hair in a balcony overseeing all this and as the music is playing and another woman comes to the comes to the stage to sing how there's blue thunderclaps and Betty is violently shaking from the entire experience like there's this woman singing this song in Spanish about loving someone and trying to live for them but then Betty's just violently just shaking to it like she doesn't know how to react to it and like it was a beautiful performance do you, do you know this woman that's on stage singing I do not um it's Re- Rebecca Del Rio she um she was actually in Twin Peaks she was one of the 
she did one of the performances at the at the Roadhouse at the end oh. of one of the episodes. She was the one wearing the zigzag. Zigzag, dress. yes. I'm like, wait, yeah. zigzag. Yeah, this scene is again one of those famous scenes from this movie. Yeah, phenomenal. Interesting bit of trivia that I found about this. Um, mm-hmm. The song she's singing is Spanish language version of "Crying" by Roy Orbison. She sang the song for David Lynch. Um, just you know, he he wanted to hear her sing, and she just kind of off the cuff sang the song. Wow. She didn't actually realize that he was recording her at the time, <laughs> and the pretty much the recording that you hear in the film is just oh. her in that sort of first take off the cuff wow just wanted to sort of show her vocal range to for david lynch at that moment and um, he yeah he was like secretly recording it My and God. ended up using it in the film and it's phenomenal like it sounds amazing it is so heavenly like my goodness yeah <laughs> which and, is like, um, more weird how like she's just shaking at it like it's so beautiful ah <laughs> well what what happens to rebecca you know part way through the song so Rebecca, she's singing, and then all of a sudden she just faints, but the music is still playing. Like, remember, it's a tape recording. This is an actual performance. Did that surprise you when that happened? Yes, very much so, because I'm like... Well, it this is what really strikes me about the scene, is that, you know, you've got this extended, basically, introduction where the MC on the stage is explicitly telling you none of this is actually happening. It's all recorded. None of this is happening live. You know, no hoi banda, there is no band. And yet when Del Rio comes out and starts singing the song, it's just so breathtaking. And then, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a genuine shock when she collapses because you're like, oh shit, you're right. This isn't actually, <laughs> this is all, it, it is all artifice. And um, it was just such a convincing performance. Yeah. It's so good. And then she is helped out by Cookie. Cookie, the guy from the hotel, helps her to mm. the back. I'm like, hmm. Yeah. You noticed that. That was good. Um, another interesting thing, um, in the audience of the show, you only briefly see it, but two of the audience members are, well, one of them is a character who was in the original run of Twin Peaks, mm-hmm. and sitting next to her is the actress who played Laura Palmer. Oh. Yeah. Same universe? Hmm. Maybe, maybe. Maybe. We'll get to oh, that. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe Club Silencio is part of the Red Room. I don't know. Same curtains. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same curtains. You're right. Boom. Every theater everywhere is part of the Red Room. <laughs> so then after Betty composes herself, she goes in her purse to get a tissue. And inside her purse appears a blue cube. Mm. What? <laughs> yep. It's so weird. So then it's like, oh, wait, that probably goes to the blue key. So then they rush back to the apartment to get to the blue uh, key. And you see Rita take down the thing, puts it on the bench. She's like, okay, Betty, come here. Betty? Betty? Yeah. Betty's Betty's gone. gone. I'm like, hmm. So then Rita takes the key, puts puts it in the cube, turns it. Then we see her open it. And then we see just darkness inside the cube. Zoom in. I'm like, oh, okay. What's in here? Cut to, there's a hallway shot. And it's there for like 30 seconds before something really happens. Then you see Aunt Ruth walk into the room. Everything's in place. No sign of anyone being there. She just kind of walks out like, hmm, 
And I'm like, wait, what happened? <laughs> then we see just this woman uh, laying in a bed the same way how it was in apartment 17 with the dead woman, just same position, laying in the bed. And we see the cowboy knocking, saying, time to wake up, pretty girl. We stay static in that moment until it transitions again to we can clearly see a blonde woman in there and it's Betty and she awakens by knocking. So then we see her get out of this bed in what looks like apartment 17. She goes to the 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 door and it's the woman from 12 asking for her stuff, her dishes and her other stuff. And then she goes, come on, Diane, it's been three weeks. So this Betty woman's now being called Diane. Hmm. When this was playing out, what what was going through your head? What were you thinking about? I was at this moment. I was thinking, like, okay, is this a flashback to show, like, maybe this is how I'm gonna see, like, how that woman died in this apartment? That was my first immediate thought. Like, okay, so this is clearly the same apartment. That's the same woman who talked about how uh, Diane still has her stuff. So, like, okay, maybe I'm about to see what happened to this woman. And then I was like, maybe I, maybe that's where um, Betty went to. Maybe she's seeing at firsthand experience, so that's why she looks like her, and stuff like that. I'm like, hmm. But then I'm like, wait. Then where did the not Rita go to? And so then I'm like, I was just like, I need to stop thinking and just let it play out because I should have known after 18 episodes of Twin Peaks: The Return, just let it all play out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good advice. So yeah, the the woman takes the box and goes, "Hey, that's my ashtray." And Dan's like, "Well, take it too." So then she she sits down and kind of looks at the at her coffee table and sees a blue key. And how the woman who's taking her stuff goes, "Hey, by the way, two detectives came by looking for you." She's like, "Huh?" Closes the door, heads to her kitchen counter and just kind of looks off in the distance. And then we see Rita come back and she's standing right there, but she addresses her as Camilla. You've come back. It's like, hmm. It cuts back to her looking at her, then cuts back to where Camilla was, and it's now Diane making coffee for herself. Like, hmm. Okay. And then cut to Camilla and uh, Diane are topless on this, trying to do it, and then Camilla's like, look, you drive me wild, but we should stop this. And she's like, don't say that. What do you mean? And then she's like, Diane, stop. And then Dan's like, it's him, isn't it? And Camilla's like, very shaken. Then mm. she kicks, kicks her out, basically. Like, hmm, where is this going? Because we already established that there that there's a connection between them. And like, these other two people, there's a connection as well. So what's going on? Is the concurrent storytelling? What's going on? And then it cuts to... Where I assume is Diane heading to the set of Adam, Adam's movie. And he's basically giving a line reading to the lead actor, which is so funny. He's like, look, let me show you how to do it. Because clearly you don't understand. So then it's yeah. this scene where he, it's in a car. They have like the thing rolling in the back screen to show movement. And he's like, look, when you're sitting here, you're supposed to love this woman. Be loose. Don't be all stern off the wheel. Just got to be loose. You know each other. Even though you don't say anything, you got to convey it through your body language. And then he starts kissing the woman. And Diane is looking in like horn to like discuss. And then it, Adam's like, cut the lights. And then it just cuts to black. 
like during this entire thing, like I, it was very hard to take notes. I just kept wanted to keep, you know, going, but I'm like, no, I need to jot down now. I remember what's yeah. actually happening. And cut to a, a to a memory of uh, Diane and Camilla fighting, and then you just see Diane is sadly masturbating. Like, oh, we've all been there. <laughs> I used to have this roommate who um, was. You know, he was he was pretty crass. Mm. You know, he was a bit of a bit of a rough dude. About ten years before I lived with him, he had like he was one of those white guys with like huge long dreadlocks. Oh. And he told me this once, and I was like, "Oh God, that sounds disgusting." And he's like, "Oh, hold on a sec." And he he went into his bedroom and he came out with a plastic bag, and he still had these fucking long dreadlocks. Anyway, I watched I watched this movie with him, and he referred to that scene as. Um, the saddest cry poke in the world <laughs> and then and then started um and then started just saying silencio silencio <laughs> <laughs> yeah funny guy <laughs> it's always the white dudes with dreads it's always them <laughs> the worst <sighs> all right so then we cut to the phone that was ringing earlier on the on the on the nightstand that was a black phone next to the lamp how it's ringing and this diane woman answers and it's camilla telling her that the car is waiting well what do you mean where is it going to take me 6980 mulholland drive so then we get into it and it's basically the beginning the opening it's just the shot mm. of a car at night, it stops, and then it's Diane this time going, what are you doing? We're st- and we're stopping. But instead of a gun being pulled out, the door opens, and it's Camilla being like, come on, it's a shortcut. So I'm like, hmm, okay. So they walk up the Hollywood Hills, and it's Adam's house, and there's a party going on. And then Adam comes in with drinks, is like, well, welcome, Diane. Here's to love. And then we see Coco's woman, this Co- the Coco manager, and it's Adam's mom's is what she addressed herself as. Like, mm. huh? Huh. So then we get into the party where they're all sitting down chit-chatting. And then this Diane gives this, the backstory about being from a small town from Ontario. I want to I wanted to come here and be, be an actress. And then it's like, well, how did you meet Camilla? Oh, I met her on one of her um, roles, the Sylvia No story. Became friends. And then ever since... We've, she's gotten me roles and then Camilla who formerly Rita she actively speaks more in Spanish in this moment she's like speaking to someone in Spanish or something like that and she has an accent I'm like huh okay because with Rita there was zero sense of an accent and this woman it's like huh there is a there is a definite point to make sure okay th- she's bilingual and she has an accent I'm like hmm okay the plot thickens Weird. I, ne- I never picked up on that huh it's interesting <laughs> <laughs> this is why you get a whitewashed Mexican on your podcast, ladies and gentlemen, for insight like this. <laughs> uh, <ole. laughs> okay. So then they just start going over like all their past and stuff like that, and then you see the the Rhodes woman from the audition come in, whisper something in Camilla's ear, and then she kisses her, and then you see Diane just visibly like shaken by it and just angry about it all. Then mm-hmm. we see 
then um, Adam, the director, has his hand over Camilla and like, I have an announcement. And he's like, they're like looking at each other, just giggling, like, who's going to say it? Who's going to say it? Then Adam's like, Camilla and I, we are just cuts before you even hear what they're about to announce. And I was like, huh. Because like in that moment, I'm like, I, I paused. I'm like, okay, what were they about to announce? And I took the impression that they were going to announce Engaged. Is that what you thought with that they were going to yeah. announce? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's kind of what you're led to led to believe. So we see just a distraught. Um, it it cuts to uh, the Diane woman, dis- like looking disheveled and distraught inside the Winkies, and she's sitting across from the hitman from earlier. Hmm. She gives him a headshot of Camilla. He's like, Jesus Christ, don't give me that here now. But she very much wants this job done. He's like, Look. The second you give me that money, this is going to happen. And you will see this blue key when it is done. She's like, fine, whatever. And then in the corner of the Winkies is Duncan, the guy who was jump scared by the homeless man. He's sitting there just kind of looking at the scene. And then she's asked about the blue key. What does it open? He's like, huh. Then we just cut to the, the camera is now going back to the scene of the dumpster. But this time there's a red tint to it. And we see the man sitting on a shopping cart and he's holding the blue box. And then he puts the blue box in a paper bag, sets it on the ground. Camera is stationed at the at the paper bag open with the blue box and like pieces of food in there. Then many versions of the elderly couple from LAX walk out laughing. What? Yeah. <laughs> Yep. This was the part where I'm like, okay, you, David Lynch, you're able to keep me guessing no matter what. You, <laughs> you can never hit a plateau of weird because clearly, last, last you, thing you expect. It's every time he gets me every time, and it's so fucking good. Like it's, it's one of those instances where I'm like, okay, I can see how so many people are calling him a hack because he does weird shit for weird shit. But like, no, this is what a visual medium's supposed to do: give you things you can't predict, give you experiences you you can't get anywhere else, and this is what he does. I mean, any other director would put something like that in their movie and just be like, what the fuck? But it somehow he manages to weave it into the film and it's, it seems like the most natural thing. Yeah, it works. It fits in. So then cut back to the Blue Keys placement on the coffee table. She stares at it. And then as she's staring, there's pounding at the door, just loud pounding. You can't really hear what they're saying, but there's loud pounding. And then the old laughing couple walks in pounding continues then blue lights and the electrical electrical sound starts entering the room and she's like screaming bloody murder at these two old people following her and then she finally reaches the bed where she was previously laying gets to the nightstand opens the drawer pulls out a gun shoots herself in the head smoke fills the room and then an overly exposure light of diane fills the screen then the homeless man with tar is briefly seen, and then the Silencio Theater is shown with regular light, and then the blue-haired woman says Silencio credits. Mm. I just kind of sat there, just in silence. Just I wasn't writing anything down. I was, I would just like, just mouth open, just uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was quite the recap. Yeah. I've, so I've seen this film a few times, and I've read a lot about what 
kind of um you know what might be happening what some of the you know some of the big interpretations of it are and one thing that lynch has always said is that it is if you know how to read the film you it's a relatively straightforward story Mm -hmm. did you get that sense (laughs) did you find it to be a relatively straightforward story i mean it was it was relatively straightforward until the switch up with the characters identities and it's like okay and then I just kind of sat there just trying to make sense of it all. Want me to tell you what I think is the overall thing of it? Yep. Let's let's do that. What do you think's happening? I think the first half of it, or like like 70%, whatever that first little introduction with, I think that is just we're seeing the final moments of this Diane woman in her head as she's recalling how she got to this point and just... just Picturing the life she w- wish she had, or something like that. This like dream narrative of what? Oh, I'm a hopeful actress. I, you know, I came from a small town, but I really, you know, stuck to it. I'm a good person. I found love, and this is how I. D- I think that's her creating the narrative she wanted to have. And then the final little bit of her as Diane and Camilla is what the the poor reality was. Like, look, your your dreams aren't really what you expected it to be. You're you're only getting roles because you're a friend to someone. You secretly love them, but they they're clearly don't want to be very public about their relationship with you she's engaged to this guy and she's clearly seeing this other woman on the side and it's it's just her being vengeful about the life she has and imagining what she should have or wanted to have i think there's probably some validity to that so one of the one of the most popular interpretations of this of this whole thing is that the um is it sort of the first like i said maybe two-thirds of the film is a construct either either a dream or a fantasy or something like that um and that the, the later part of the movie is i guess the quote reality or the sort of the yeah the, the waking up from a from a dream yeah the silencio scene is an interesting one because i think that does kind of mark the point where if it if the first part of the film is a you know a dream and someone is sleeping and you know maybe the silencio part is when they are starting to wake up that's when she sort of starts shaking in her chair instead of having that sort of violent reaction that's where they uncover the blue box i think that um when betty disappears and sort of the camera zooms into the black into the blue box i think that's kind of the point where the two layers of reality kind of shift into each other and i don't know potentially the blue box represents the truth or you know the the realization of of what's happened and i think that you're right i think the latter part of the film is um the the harsh reality of what this care of who this character is and you know what her life has become and that um the first part of the film is um wish fulfillment or kind of you know a, a way to justify to herself that things will be okay the other, I mean, other stuff to, I guess, support that interpretation is um, is around the hitman. You know, we, we sort of know from the latter part of the film that she basically hired this hitman. The The fact that the blue key is in her apartment kind of indicates that that has happened. In the first part of the film, when we first see the hitman, he's bumbling and incompetent. And maybe that is, you know, in this fabrication that she's, that she's made for herself, maybe that's sort of a... A wish that you know that he wasn't so good at his job and right. you know that he's that he, he wouldn't have gone through with it because she feels guilty about it 
Yeah. Little things like that. And there's, there's a bunch of these. Right. Yeah. The beauty of this film, I think, is that um, there's several different interpretations. You can point to evidence for, for everything. But there's always going to be one or two little things that are not quite, that don't quite mm. fit neatly. Yeah. That might fit into a slightly different interpretation. So it leaves it, you know, way open. And that's, I think that's what I love about it. Just before we move on, this film did have an interesting kind of production history as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know, know too much about this, Vinny, but um, back in the early 90s, the idea for this film uh, was actually intended as a spin-off of Twin Peaks. What? Uh, you'll be very, very pleased to hear that the original concept for this idea was that it was going to be the continuing adventures of a certain Twin Peaks character who had shifted from Twin Peaks to LA. Can you guess which character? Oh, Twin Peaks. So, like, the narrative was they left Twin Peaks and now they're in LA? Yeah, that was kind of the... There's not too much information about what it was, but originally in right. the 90s, there was a, a spin-off film conceived which some of these elements would have incorporated for one particular character who we did see in The Return. Was that character a female? Yes. Was it Lucy? Nope. Oh, was it fucking Audrey? <laughs> yes, indeed. Oh, yes. So um, originally, uh, it, it came out a few years ago, Sherilyn Finn mentioned that um, back in the day, her and Lynch had kind of discussed plans to do an, an Audrey spinoff. Um, obviously, that didn't happen. Good. Um, but in the Good. late 90s, in around 98, 99, Lynch actually developed Mulholland Drive as a pilot for a new series. Hmm, okay. And um, if you look for it, there is a version of Mulholland Drive, which is just over an hour long, um, which is the sort of the pilot version. It's mostly the same as kind of the first hour or so of of the feature film, mm-hmm. uh, with some slight differences. There are, it, there are actually a couple of extra scenes with Robert Forster and um, the other the other guy. Ooh. I think from memory, it sort of finishes around the club silencio time i, th- I think uh-huh. i could i could be rem- remembering that wrong yeah fam- it didn't get picked up um there's a a story that lynch tells about how the the executive at abc all watched the the rough cut pilot um at six o'clock in the morning while he was having coffee and wasn't you know fully immersed in it <laughs> and they sort of passed on it but uh, a french film production company really liked oh, they, they managed to see this and really liked what it was and gave lynch some extra funding to sort of turn it into a feature film which is what he did and that's that's what we end up with today wow in 2016 mulholland drive was named the greatest film of the 21st century by bbc culture wow man yep. so Vinny, do you think mulholland drive is the best film of the 21st century it's that thing where it's definitely an experience and I can agree that people will be like, oh, it's the best thing I've ever seen in my life. Where for me, it's I need something where I can get an emotional connection to someone like I liked Betty enough as a main character, but I wasn't overly emotionally invested. It was, I was I was more invested in the mystery instead of the characters. So for me to think it's the best of the 21st century, I need to see that it has like the visuals, but also like the heart of it, the story of it, that where I, I could feel something for the character. So I think visually it's up there, but emotionally for me, it's it, it's not there for me. 
Whatever, man. <laughs> Whatever, man. <laughs> Name one other film that's come out in the 21st century. Uh, yeah, exactly. You can't do it. It's impossible. <laughs> Spider-Man 2. Fuck. All right. <laughs> okay. Would you recommend Mulholland Drive? Yes. It's funny because I think it's almost like an end of Evangelion moment where it's like, this is an experience. You will feel things, you will see shit, and only a movie can do. Whether it resonates with you to where it's like going to make you know your top ten of all time is one thing, but you will have an unforgettable experience watching it. So yeah, I highly recommend it, even though it might not top your list. Are you glad you watched it for oh, this hell yeah. podcast? Got my nice. 4K, very nice 4K in my collection. Uh, so yeah, nice. I'm I'm still jealous. If you had the choice, would you rather watch Mulholland Drive again or Shin Godzilla? Oh, shit. Mulholland Drive in a theater would be really good. So, yeah, just for the jump scare aspect as well. (laughs) Um, On that topic, should we we maybe talk about Shin Godzilla? (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about the big lizard. The big lizard. All right. Um, Let me ask you, though, first, Vinny, what's... um, What's your history with Godzilla? Uh, yeah, I remember uh, before the 2014 one came out, like a, like I think it was like Sci-Fi, one of those channels, like Godzilla Marathon. So I nice. watched the original black and white one in that marathon. I watched the original oh, right. Godzilla vs. Kong. Cool. And then I got 30 minutes into Roland Emmerich's and just shut it off. Yeah. <laughs> so then I would then see like the legendary pictures, you know, Godzilla 2014, Godzilla King of the Monsters and King Kong versus Godzilla last year. And yeah, I, nice. I, I'm a Godzilla fan and I think he's awesome. Yeah, man. Yeah. No, I've seen a few of the, um, few of the old school ones. I've only seen 2014. I haven't seen any of the newer ones, but I really dug Shin Godzilla. I thought it was really, really cool. But first let's, let's recap it. So Shin Godzilla opens on a scene of the Japanese Coast Guard investigating an apparently unoccupied sailboat out in, I think, Tokyo Harbor? Yes. There's nobody on board, uh, but there's some files and stuff and um, a a pretty prominent piece of origami. Shortly after that, that boat is destroyed by some kind of explosion in the harbor, uh, which also damages the Aqualine Tunnel. And I didn't look this up, but I'm guessing the Aqualine Tunnel is kind of like a, a tunnel that sort of goes underwater through yeah. Tokyo, which is pretty pretty cool. Um, a group of government officials all kind of gather and speculate on what caused the damage, and they're stunned when some citizen journalist footage of an enormous tail <laughs> emerging from the water <laughs> kind of goes viral. This confirms the suspicions of one official, uh, Yaguchi, Yep. Um, but the damage was caused by a, some kind of enormous living creature. The Prime Minister of Japan goes on live TV after being assured by his officials that um, the probability of the creature coming on land is, is very low, <laughs> <laughs> only to be hilariously interrupted by um, the breaking news that the creature has, <laughs> has now gone made its way onto the land. When they revealed the... Yeah, one... That shot where the smoke cleared and you finally see the creature for the first time. I was I was in hysterics. It looks it looks like a fucking turd puppet. Yeah. <laughs> like little little button eyes. So it was so funny. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it looks like this enormous turd basically with little stumpy legs 
very slowly making its way through the streets of Tokyo. Or should I say Tokyo One? Through, yeah, towards towards kind of the Tokyo metro area. While all this is happening, um, the Prime Minister and, you know, lots and lots of government officials seemingly have all these meetings where they sort of swap between (laughs) meeting rooms (laughs) for some reason. Like, they just... It's... The other funny thing is with this film is that you know, every new character or every new setting or every new thing was kind of subtitled. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was really funny. So you'd sort of see, you know, cabinet conference room, fifth floor, prime minister's residence. And then they say, oh, we need to move to a new meeting room. And they go to the fourth floor. <laughs> it's, just, it's really funny. They move around a lot um, for no sort of good reason. Yeah, so they, they seem to move between these meeting rooms a lot, sort of wringing their hands and trying to figure out what the hell to do. Meanwhile, the creature kind of evolves before their very eyes into a, a bipedal beast that can kind of stand on two legs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of like, you know, grows and evolves. I think it turns red at some point. Yeah. And seems like it's it's getting really hot. <laughs> so it, <laughs> it goes back into the ocean to cool down. The US sends a very japanese looking young woman i think she's like a special envoy or or somebody Mm, and she kind of reveals that the boat from the beginning of the film belonged to a disgraced professor there were some files recovered that sort of contained data showing that um there was a bunch of basically dumped nuclear waste in the harbor which has caused some kind of um, creature to mutate and grow and this beast, which is given the name Godzilla, um, is kind of the result of that mutation. Later, Godzilla kind of emerges from the water again. Um, he's now twice the size that he was before um, and makes his way inland, leaving a trail of destruction. Um, various assembled US forces unload a massive amount of firepower at it uh, with kind of little effect. Godzilla uses his fire breath and laser beams from both his mouth and the fins on his back which basically slice through buildings and cause untold havoc Uh, also destroys all of the heavy artillery which is aimed at it including the prime uh, including the the helicopter the prime minister was in you know all this destruction does wear the big boy out though and um, he goes into a this kind of state of standing hibernation to try and recover being the highest-ranking survivor among the among the government, the Minister for Agriculture becomes the de facto Prime Minister. And <laughs> I had to write this down. He, he complains that his noodles have gone soggy. Yes. <laughs> after, after he spends a few minutes being debriefed on the, on the situation <laughs> outside of Tokyo. Officials somehow estimate that they have about two weeks before Godzilla will reawaken. Um, and with the help of the US, they develop a plan to basically destroy it using nuclear weapons, which would likely wipe out most of Japan um, in the process. They also scramble to try and evacuate as many citizens as they can. While all of this is going on, um, there's this group of, I think they call them like nerds and rejects and misfits. Nerds, from... rejects, degenerates, misfits, whatever. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's like this, this ragtag group from various agencies and places. Um, it's like the Breakfast Club, the, basically the yeah, the creep. The ge- <laughs> yeah, the the jock, the um, the nerd, the princess, all the basket boy. case. Yeah, that's it. Um, 
yeah, they're, they're all sort of working in this underground bunker somewhere um, on an alternative plan to try and um, either capture or, um, you know, stop Godzilla without <laughs> resorting to nuclear war. And they discover through analysing some of, you know, some of the samples collected that um, the way Godzilla's biology operates, he's, it's effectively the same way a nuclear, operate, a nuclear reactor does. Um, and they also devise this plan that if, if they can develop enough blood coagulating stuff and get that into his body, then Godzilla will kind of freeze and die, effectively. The young woman from the US Embassy, who is not at all keen to have a third nuclear bomb dropped on Japan, yeah. manages to buy the group enough time to finish developing the coagulating agent, and they go through this perilous mission to basically <laughs> ram a bunch of trains at it to take out its legs, <laughs> demolish a building, a few buildings to fall on it um, so that it's, it's down on the ground and um, basically deliver its payl- the, a payload of this blood coagulant into his mouth. They do manage to do this, but Godzilla kind of like emerges from the rubble and you just, and you, in a moment where you're kind of thinking, oh shit, it hasn't worked. <laughs> But then he sort of roars and promptly, very quickly, just sort of freezes in place as his scales kind of solidify, um, which was really cool. That looked, that looked awesome. And all of this happens only hours before the nuclear strike was mm-hmm. was about to, to start. So they, they managed to sort of solve the problem right at the last minute, which is great. Um, the film ends with people rejoicing and... A very quick close-up of Godzilla's body with some weird... And it was a very quick shot, so I couldn't quite make it out, but it looked like small humanoid shapes sort mm. of emerging from his body. Yep. And I didn't quite know what to make of that. I, I mean, my interpretation was that if he was continuing to evolve, that he would... Basically, his body would split into thousands of tiny little Godzillas and wreak havoc and grow and spawn and multiply. Mm. I mean, is that what is kind of happening there? Yes, that that he was to further evolution. You know, the whole point of the film is this evolving creature. You know, it's a tail. Oh, it's this crawling thing. Oh, it's bipedal. Oh, it's a giant nuke full of lasers. So what's needed for evolution? Reproduction. He can A, Mm. reproduce, so he doesn't need a mate. He just needs enough energy or supplements, and then bam, he can just reproduce from his tail. And um, I guess they kind of left it ambiguous so that, you know, you know, potentially some of these things might have escaped before before he froze, maybe. Mm. You know, sequel potential, perhaps. But yeah, cool ending. Like, I really like this ending. I thought, I thought it was cool. Yeah, I thought, I thought this was a really fun movie. And, um, you know, ha- having seen, you know, the rebuild Evangelion films and just kind of what I've absorbed about the Evangelion series, lots of little... Lots of cool little nods to, to, to that series and stuff. There's that scene where they're all in the war room and basically, you know, they, they couldn't be bothered commissioning a new score for the thing, so they just yeah. use Evangelion music. That's it's the exact out. same one! Dun, yeah, it dun, is. It's the... Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was very funny. Um, there's some really interesting camera work in this. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's one... There's one shot where there's a bunch of group, a um, bunch of government officials in an elevator, which looked like it was, you know, a recreation of several scenes from Evangelion. Mm-hmm. But there is some really cool shots. Like the, uh, there was, there's one in particular where a, a few characters are sort of having a conversation, and there's there's one character which is in the foreground, 
and he's listening to what someone is saying in the background, but like they're sort of right on the far left of the screen in the background and they're the ones talking and yet the focus is kind of on the person running the foreground. It just seemed, you know, an unusual way to, to shoot that scene. There's another one where I think the, the US envoy woman and, um, I forget his name now, the, the main... Yaguchi? Um, yeah, Yaguchi. Uh, sort of standing in front of some facility and they're, they're, having a, they're having a conversation, but the camera's just kind of pulling back and getting further and further away from them as the mm-hmm. conversation's continuing. It's, it just seems like a, a weird choice, but yeah, really striking and cool. And, you know, it ends with them. She's like, well, I'll be president and you'll be my liaison over here. He's yeah, like, yeah, whatever. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's that whole through line around how they're trying to, you know, they're kind of making plans for, you know, their further career. And he's just like, well, you know, Maybe I'll be prime minister in 10 years. You know, and they're like, well, you know, if, if Japan even exists in 10 years. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, I really like this one. I thought it was, I thought it was choice. So here's a little bit of background. I'm on the production of this. Yeah, hit me. Okay, so the last the Toho produced Godzilla was Godzilla Final Wars, which was like early 2000s, and it did not do well in the box office or critically. So Toho mm-hmm. chose to just let the because it was that a few years after the Roland Emmerich one. So like, ugh, Godzilla's a brand isn't yeah. as strong anymore. So let's let it sit. Let's let it you know be in silence before we bring it Actually, back. Actually, um, I, I saw Silent Wars when it came out in 2004, and they played at the film festival that they had here, and I saw it at it was either a midnight screening or it was like a late night screening at this amazing theater in auckland the, the civic theater which people might recognize from um peter jackson's king kong it was like the it was used as the as the theater oh. for that yes yeah, so i saw it there um late one night and packed house awesome fun like it was great and the famous scene where the american godzilla shows up and then actual godzilla dispatches it within about 30 seconds and everyone was just fucking out of their seats cheering at that it was so it was so great <laughs> but sorry continue it's okay so it was like in that in that little break was when legendary got the rights to be like oh we'll do another one and we'll do it right this time then toe was like okay so if that does well then let's do our own so then you know Mm. 2014 godzilla happens and huge success you know best Mm. best of the franchise so far so then toe was like okay we need to do one but we need to do it way differently because yeah here's the differences like godzilla 2014 godzilla's the hero and Shin Godzilla, no, he's the menace he's supposed to be. Mm. The the one in 2014, he's this big, massive, long, like like chunky boy. This one, mm. he's very skinny at points, especially the tail is so skinny yeah. and menacing looking. Like, how do you like the yeah. design of Godzilla in this movie? I thought it was cool. Like, I thought it was really interesting. Like I said, there were there were points where I couldn't tell if it was animatronic or if it was CG. Like, it looked, it had this real kind of like puppet or animatronic type of feel and um the way that it's kind of head and face kind of evolved like it had a its mouth is huge and um yeah it looks looks really different from sort of the classic godzilla design as well so it was very actively like okay let's do what the americans aren't doing because clearly they got their own stuff they're building their own universe we gotta take godzilla back to his roots so who's mm. widely known successful director in japan who loves big monster movies and stuff like that oh Arno, you want to do it can i'm doing the evangelion movies are you sure you really don't want to do it <sighs> i'm depressed and that's the time's gonna take a while so 
Let's do it. So, Ano co-directed this with Shinji uh, Ikari. Shinji Higuchi, who is a character designer and writer at Gainax. He's also who Shinji is named after in oh, Evangelion. Really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Nice. Just on that, what was the response amongst um, Evangelion fans when it was announced that Arno was was doing this? Were people pissed that the, that the next Rebel film was going to take longer now? Yes. Were people like, what the fuck, dude? You you owe us a, an Ava film. Come on. Why are you doing this now? There was that, but also, fuck, he's getting Godzilla. This fanboy, oh, it's going to be so good. So it was just the right, anger of, fuck, of we got to wait longer for Thrice Upon a Time. But man, he's the right choice. Cool. Okay. No, that's cool to hear. So yeah, so through this film, the the whole like <laughs> legislation depiction, he 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 famously hates legislation. So him showing their incompetence, like well, that's so purposeful. Like, look how many mm. steps need to get done before action is actually taken by a government, yeah. and stuff like that. Or how like the Americans are so eager to get like to be promised all these things after the war is done. Like, oh, we right. need samples, we need all your records, we need everything from this project the second we kill him. Yeah and stuff like that and also how he always described how seeing the first godzilla for him like you need to be scared of him like he he was a mm. fan how later it was like oh team up movies and godzilla saves the day but no he he remembers the first time he saw godzilla and he was a frightening thing he was a warning about the world the nuclear age of the world and stuff like that so yeah. he very purposely wanted to go head first and no our godzilla is not the hero he never was a hero so we need to show the destruction a nuclear world brings Want to know how well this did? Yeah, tell me. It not only broke records, it got Best Picture and Best Director from the Japanese Academy Awards. Wow. Wow. Right? Mulholland Drive was nominated for... I don't know if... Actually, was it nominated for Best Picture? It was nominated for Best Director, I think, but um, didn't win. Damn. Wow. Best picture, wow. That's Best crazy. Picture. Godzilla. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy to think that, you know, a, a Godzilla film in 2016 is the best thing that came <laughs> out of Japan. <laughs> but that just shows how he's so entwined with the culture of Japan. Like, you know, yeah. there's no Godzilla without Japan. Like, every single American remake, it makes it, they have to have an Asian person because... He's his roots are, w- are with Japan, so it's like I it, it it was like this reinvention of him. Like, sure, it's a warning to the masses, but like this was ours, and now he's back. Mm. But then soon after his release, I was like, I don't think I'm doing another one. It's like, oh, ah. well, now Toho has still not announced another one because they're still trying to look for someone to make a follow up or reboot it again. Final Wars, they were kind of trying to do that. They had some young hotshot director helm that one i think because i think final wars was kind of like the was it the 50th anniversary of the original film or something yeah it was an anniversary movie i remember that surprised me that didn't, that final wars didn't do so well i mean it, it was so bad it just tanked it just well let's let's give it a break i really enjoyed it i haven't seen it since but um yeah i had, I had a great time with it you know what godzilla 2014 needed need, mm. needed two things in my opinion i think it needed more cranston yes <laughs> god and it needed more Godzilla. Yeah. <laughs> like it was just... Like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I was pretty underwhelmed by 
No, I need to see Aaron Taylor Johnson kiss Elizabeth Olsen and care about the humans because that's what we're here to see, right? Human, blah, blah, blah. No, just have Brian Cranston yelling in the foreground as, you know, background shit's going, the fucking monster took my wife! One of the funnest Godzilla um, experiences that I've had was um, like a, a 24-hour movie marathon at, mm-hmm. um, at one of the cool old theaters that we that we have in Auckland. And one year, it was, I think it was 2003-ish, I went along to it and they showed, fuck, what was it called? Uh, I can't remember the name of it. It was either Godzilla's Revenge or Son of Godzilla or something like this. And it was widely regarded as like the worst Godzilla movie. The, the plot line was that there was this little boy who you know doesn't have any friends and he goes on these imaginary journeys to monster island where he meets the son of godzilla that weird looking thing which you know <laughs> if you've seen it and it's, it's it's cobbled together from a bunch of old older godzilla movies and then there's this weird subplot about these criminals that are trying to kidnap him for some reason mm. it's, it's just a very funny cheesy movie and um you know with terrible dubbing and everything so, um, yeah, it's, it's widely regarded as, like, the, the bottom of the barrel for old Godzilla movies. And um, I saw that at sort of 3 a.m. <laughs> after no sleep, and it was, it was very fun. Yeah. So, Vinny, we did a thing on our mainline show where we tried to sort of come up with some similarities between Evangelion films and whatever, whatever episodes of Twin Peaks uh, we'd been watching. I think for this bonus episode, um, which I'm probably going to title Shin Mulholland Drive. Yeah. I don't think we could have picked two less similar (laughs) movies. I mean, (laughs) yeah, I mean, uh, I I honestly don't. Did you notice anything in common between these two movies? I just... I very loosely did the connection of like broken promises because I'm like because oh, I'm like yeah. there's clearly broken promises in Mahal Drive and then broken promises in Shin Godzilla where it's like the U.S. being like oh we're fifty fifty on this trust me we're fifty fifty then at the end like no we need everything you fucking have on this thing mm, broken promises yeah that's a good one I had I had a couple again pretty loose so this is more about in the production but uh one of the similarities i noticed was that um, both films are i guess examples of filmmakers using the bones of one of their existing tv properties um, as a springboard for a film project Ooh, that's good share some of the same elements but you know recontextualize in a completely new way so obviously with uh, with arno we've got like you know these apocalyptic scenarios and giant creatures that um you know that that various agencies have to respond to and deal with and with Mulholland Drive we've sort of got um these elements of noir that we had from in Twin Peaks um potentially vaguely supernatural stuff and damaged characters that um you know are examples of a seedy underbelly I guess also I noticed that sort of both films address powerful and dominant cultural structures in a satirical way mm. so there's a lot going on in Mulholland Drive um, around you know the Hollywood you know, the film industry and you know the Hollywood system and everything and Arno was not shy of um, criticizing <laughs> government bureaucracy and red tape um, through his handling of, uh, of those of uh, the government officials in, uh, in Godzilla also both films contain some beautiful women 
his um, Japanese special envoy. She was very cute. <laughs> yeah, I love Good her stuff. name is Miss Patterson. Like, remember, she's American, technically. <laughs> like, Patterson. <laughs> One final thing that I forgot to share earlier, and this is about Mulholland Drive. Personal anecdote. I don't, I don't use Twitter much anymore, but I, I was I was using it heavily a few years ago, and um, I think I think I'd rewatched Mulholland Drive for the first time in a few years, and I, and I just I tweeted, did some innocuous tweet like, you know, Mulholland Drive is such a good film, or something something along those lines. I got added by this account. I can't for the life of me remember the name of it, but I, th- I think his whole deal was that he um, he basically responds to anything any tweet that mentions Mulholland Drive. And basically shits on anyone that has any kind of interpretation about Mulholland Drive, mm. because his whole thing is that he's got this um, he, he's got this long rambling website where he claims to have uncovered the complete, actual, mind blowing, irrefutable truth about what Mulholland Drive is about and how it operates as a film. And that it's it's such a transcendent experience that it defies categorization. And he is the sole person on the planet that can accurately describe and um, articulate what the film is doing on a molecular level. And I've tried reading his website and it is fucking incomprehensible. <laughs> is, I remember checking out his profile and um, the, the, the banner of his Twitter profile was basically a picture of a whole lot of people in suits with their heads buried in the sand. And <laughs> it was, it was some weird caption, like, um, you know, every film, every film critic who thinks they know Mulholland drive will feel compelled to commit suicide after learning the truth. And like all this weird bullshit <laughs> like this. And his, his whole shtick on Twitter was to, um, basically respond to any mention of Mulholland drive and sort of, you know, expose the truth about what the film is doing. And I remember I, you know, called him out on it and sort of, you know, had a bit of a, a back and forth with him. He, he blocked me, so I couldn't find him again. <laughs> Damn. But if I find, if I do, if I manage to find this, I'll, I'll probably, I'll try and link it in the show notes because man, it is a, it's a wild ride. It's just, it's, it's the exact kind of website you can imagine. Like it's a black <laughs> screen with like, you know, different colored text and there's like different <laughs> layers, and he uses the word Mobius strip a thousand times. Oh. And there's always, there's diagrams, there's all kinds of shit. It's, it's a wild ride. So I'll try and find that and link it because it's, it's very, very funny. And uh, Try and get him on the show. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> yeah. yeah I'll, reach, I'll reach out to him. He'll probably remember me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, maybe we should wrap it up. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for this, this very special bonus episode. Um, Vinny, this has been a blast to you know, reconnect with you and have this discussion about these films. Yeah, any sort of final thoughts on any any of this stuff? Just that I thought I, w- I knew what I was getting into, and I'm like, okay, now to watch Lynch's movies. Oh, I, I, I'm i never going to understand this man, and that's going to be the treat for whatever project I watch next of his. Nice. Maybe we'll do another episode. Maybe we'll watch Mulhol- um Not Mulholland Drive. Maybe we'll just watch that one. Uh, maybe we'll do Lost Highway at some point, or... Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do something. So, we yeah... I, no time frame on that because we've both got lives but um yeah keep we'll do we'll drop something in the future um dear listener let's leave it there then um should we should we do some music yeah let's why do some not? music have you got, got anything you want to plug any any uh, songs that you're digging at the moment anything i want to choose an underrated song 
from Yellow Card. That is called Rough Landing Holly. Not super familiar with Yellow Card's uh, discography, but I'll uh, I'll chuck that on there. Do yourself a favor and get re- get well acquainted with it. It's so good. Uh, yeah. Except the part where they sue dead rappers. Forget about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I had heard about that. That nonsense, but interesting. Um, what am I going to listen to? Maybe I will choose... Ah. Oh. Actually, there was a song that came out last year. It got got to the top of a few sort of end-of-year best-of lists. Um, I'd never heard of this artist before. This artist called No Name, and the song is hmm. Rainforest. And I don't really know much about what they do, but this is a great track. And I haven't checked out much of their other stuff, but um, yeah, let's listen to Rainforest by um, by No Name. It's it's nice. cool. I think you'll dig it, Vinny. All right, let's leave it there. Great to talk to you again, Vinny. Thank you all again for listening. Um, dicks out for Harambe. Um, hashtag Coney2012. Um, <laughs> hashtag eat ass2022. Hashtag eat ass. Um, hashtag Opa Gangnam Style. Um, <laughs> We'll see you when we see you. Take Take care. See ya.